Welcome to the podcast on Sources of the Reign of Robert I and the Anglo-Scottish Wars of Independence. This is a podcast produced by the Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project, The Community of the Realm in Scotland, 1249 to 1424, History, Law and Charters in a Recreated Kingdom. The project team is made up of historians from the universities of Edinburgh, Glasgow and King's College London and is recorded in the King's online studio at King's College London. Each week we take one of the important sources from the reign of Robert Bruce, King of Scots, from 1306 to 1329 and explain what it is, how it survives and why it matters. I'm Alice Taylor from King's College London and this week Professor Dorvit Brune from the University of Glasgow will be taking us through the Declaration of Our Broth. So, Dorvit Brune, the Declaration of Our Broth, what is this source? So the first thing to say about the Declaration of Our Broth is that the title is modern. So nobody in the Middle Ages would have recognised it as the Declaration of Our Broth. Um, What it actually is, is a letter written, at least in the name of, 39 uh, members of the nobility of Scotland on behalf of the freeholders and community of the realm to the Pope, Pope John XXII. It was in the Middle Ages also uh, referred to as a given a title, how the descendants of the Scots of noble prowess write to the Lord Pope complaining about the King of England. So that's the, that's the way it was packaged uh, in the Middle Ages in Scotland. And um, you can see in some way why we've gone for the more catchy title of the Declaration of Our Broths. <laughs> but how does it survive? How does the Declaration of Our Broths, so-called, survive? So the, uh, the, the main way it survives that many people will be familiar with is as a duplicate original, original to use the technical terminology, the letter written on a sheet of parchment, animal skin, um, sent to the Pope is lost. Um, but a copy was kept, which again is a single sheet of parchment and it's still got... Uh, the seals of the nobles in whose name it was sent, um, dangling at the bottom, um, some of which survive, many have dropped off. Uh, and uh, this is a very uh, striking image, which you can see on the web um, uh, many times. So uh, that's the thing that comes to mind when we think about how does it survive. Um, it should be said that if you look at the image, you will see there are holes in the parchment. Mm. So it is quite damaged. Uh, Very fortunately, an engraving was made of the original way back in the very early 1700s, and that survives, and there was only a tiny bit of the text lost at that stage. So so it is possible to to read what was in the holes uh, Mm. that we see now. So that's the main way it survives, But there are other ways in which it survives. There are two other uh, contexts. One is that it was included in a dossier of documents relating to Scottish independence, which was put together originally in 1301. This dossier was put together in 1301 for the Scottish procurators at the court of the Pope, arguing for independence against Edward I. And that dossier was then copied and... At the front of the dossier, the Declaration of Broth was Mm. included. So that dossier of documents only survives intact because it was added to manuscripts of John of Forden's 
Chronicles. So there are four of those which have the dossier of documents uh, attached to it. And from that dossier, it also got into uh, the sort of landmark work of medieval Scottish history, that is Walter Bower's Scottish Chronicon, a complete history of Scotland from its origins through to uh, origins of the Scots through to the assassination of James I in 1437. And the declaration was incorporated into Walter Bower's text of Scottish history. And uh, from there, it has survived in, of course, copies of the Scottish Chronicon and also subsequent versions, abbreviations and so on of that text. Mm. So that is actually the way that most people in medieval Scotland who uh, had access to libraries would have been able to read the declaration. Mm. So it's actually quite accurate to say that it literally becomes a part of Scottish history. Absolutely (laughs) right. That's a very beautiful way to put it. Um, So... Let's go back to 1320. What's the context in which the Declaration of Arbroath is issued? So the um, general context is that Robert Bruce has recently, in June 1318, managed to retake the last major stronghold of the Scottish Kingdom that was still in English possession, um, and that's uh, Berwick, which, of course, at that stage was a major Scottish town and he was under intense diplomatic pressure to come to an arrangement with Edward II. The problem is that uh, the King of England and the papacy had uh, a very close working arrangement shall we uh, we say and and the, the Pope was very much taking the King of England's side in this dispute. So this was a serious problem, obviously, for Robert I. We should remember that the papacy, if you like, is the equivalent to the UN in this context. Uh, so you know, if you're wanting to have your independence recognised, it's got to be by the Pope, or it's not really going to mm. count. I mean, in 1319, the, the, the Duke of Poland gets recognised as, as, as King of Poland. So this is something that's a bit of a speciality of John the Twenty Second, really, isn't it? Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so, so this is why it makes sense to write to the Pope uh, to explain why Scotland should be an independent kingdom. There is a, a, another context, shall we say, a domestic context, which is that Robert Bruce, we remember took the throne, involved a bit of violence Mm -hmm. back in 1306, and the major issue there was that there there was already an inaugurated king, albeit he'd ceased to function, and that's John Balliol, who was inaugurated in 1292, and obviously he had ceased to rule directly in 1296, but there had been governments in his name through till 9th of February 1304, and his son, Edward, was uh, still very much alive in 1320 and in England, and gathering support. So, for anybody in Scotland who was dissatisfied with Robert Bruce's kingship, there was a very obvious alternative. And the immediate context is that At this time, there was already a conspiracy afoot to get rid of Robert and replace him, almost certainly, with Edward Balliol. When this conspiracy came to light in August, a few months later, the the way it was presented was that their plan was to substitute Robert Bruce with somebody who 
of William Sewell's, but uh, but it's almost certain, as Michael Penman has argued, that uh, Edward Balliol was who they had in mind. So it was the Declaration of Broth was written by the government of Robert Bruce in the context of an awareness that not all was well domestically and that uh, there, there, was a, there was a particular issue, not helped by the fact that uh, there was no clear successor to Robert Bruce at this time. Well, there was, but uh, that was his uh, grandson, mm. who was uh, not long out of nappies, mm. uh, Robert Stewart. So anybody wanting to dislodge the Bruce dynasty could reasonably have thought this is just a matter of getting rid of Robert Bruce and then the Bruce cause finishes. Because if you don't have a Bruce king, how can you fight for the Bruce cause? So the, the, so the declaration is really this, is, is being issued in a period of intense pressure where recognition of Robert's kingship by the Pope is a real desideratum. It's essential, yeah. yes, exactly. So what does it actually say? Well, so the... Um, the Declaration of Broth begins uh, with the, the list of the nobles in whose name it is sent, uh, so 39 of them in the duplicate original, and it then moves uh, the focus to brief account of the ancient history of the Scots, explaining where they came from, and particularly making the claim that they were brought to the Christian faith by none other than St Andrew himself, and therefore one of the first two peoples to become Christian, and then uh, the focus moves to Edward I and explaining how he had uh, invaded the Scottish Kingdom in the guise of a friend when they were most vulnerable because they lacked uh, lacked a head, referring presumably to Alexander III's uh, death in 1286, and, uh, and then the various atrocities and outrages that Edward had committed. And then the focus moves to Robert Bruce as the saviour of the kingdom, who's restored the freedom of the kingdom. And then it includes this amazing clause about how they are, if Robert was actually to surrender to the English and, and hand over the kingdom and people in the Scots to the King of England, uh, they would get rid of him and put somebody else in place. Uh, and then the focus finally moves to the Pope, explaining that uh, if only they would, he would listen not to Edward II, but to the Scots, uh, and would tell Edward II to be satisfied with England, uh, which is big enough, and all the Scots are wanting is to live in their own little tiny corner of the world, which is at the edge of known habitation, then the Scots would be willing to join in crusades and help liberate the Holy Land, and, and then quite strikingly, it finishes the main part of it finishes with a, a bit of a threat to the Pope saying, If you don't do this, then on your head be it, you will be responsible for all the bloodshed that's going to continue, uh, and uh, you, you will have to answer to God uh, in the final judgment for bringing scandal into onto Christendom. This will, wow, be a stain. this will be a, sta a stain on your record. And then, of course, it finishes with, in the usual way with the statement that it was given out of broth um, on the 6th of April, 1320. Goodness. They really went for it at the end then. <laughs> they did, they did. It, was, it, it, is, it is very striking. It's not a bit that usually gets, gets read, but, uh, but you have to remember this is actually going to be read out to the Pope. Mm. That's their intention. So it is, the, the whole thing is, is as strong prose as could be imagined uh, in this period. 
So why then, thank you, why then does it matter as a document? Well, as a, I mean, in, in a way, this, there's so many different ways to answer this. I mean, obviously it matters because it's so well known. It's not as well known as Magna Carta. Certainly in Scotland it has got a very special place as a statement of Scottish freedom, and that's why it's become known as the Declaration of Our Broth. Mm. So it, it has this um, powerful, powerful presence in uh, Scottish identity today, and therefore that makes it also matter how we understand it as a medieval document. It makes it more difficult, because we've mm. got to see through all that and try and imagine it's at the time in which it was produced and that's uh, something which there's never going to be complete agreements on but it's always worth trying to think through. So if one were, as a subsidiary question, if one were to try and think through its significance say in the six, in the year after 1320, what would you say? Well it's, it, it was effective in, in getting the Pope's attention. Diplomatically I think you could say it was successful Obviously, there was more to it uh, than just the letter that uh, eventually turned the, turned the Pope's mind uh, to be more favourable to the Scottish cause. Um, but the main significance is, as you said earlier, that it was it, it became part of Scottish history, the way Scottish history was written, part of the standard account in Latin of Scotland's history as a kingdom, and and it's it's really in that sense as a as a statement of of the freedom of the of the kingdom that it's became so well known i mean it is worth adding of course that there there has been quite a lot of attention given to that particular clause threatening to depose robert bruce the deposition clause as it were and ideas about how this might signify uh, a particularly um, a particular version of uh, ways of thinking about sovereignty as belonging to the people and so on. So what one dimension to this that is important to think about is when that started to happen, that way of reading mm. the documents, because uh, there, there isn't any evidence that it was understood at the time as being a great constitutional principle about the sovereignty of the people. It can simply be read as saying, if Robert is going to be stupid enough to give up his kingdom, then he, we're going to get rid of him. <laughs> I mean, it's a very specific context. So uh, there, there are a number of ways in which it has uh, become very significant and why, therefore, it matters to try and put it in its medieval context. Dorotbrun, thank you very much. If you've liked this podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. And you can also follow the project on Twitter. Um, our handle is at Couture2020, that's C-O-T-R 2020. And visit our website online at www.couture.ac.uk. Thank you.